The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I fix problems. I don't make them. Attempts to suppress any citizen's lawful right to vote is a problem. It's more than a problem. It's just plain intolerable in a pluralistic democratic republic. That said, at this moment, there are more than 200 bills floating around in various stages of debate in 43 state legislatures that aim at doing just that, suppressing the vote. They've all been initiated since the big lie about the big steal. And despite unequivocal equivocal statements supported by evidence from 50 state governors, 50 state legislatures, the courts, state courts, federal courts, the Supreme Court, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Congress voting to accept the certified results of each and every one of those 50 states, despite clear proof of a fair and free election from the Cyber Integrity Branch of the Department of Homeland Security, and despite the judgment of the Attorney General and the U.S. Department of Justice, including the FBI, that no credible claims of voter fraud have been found that would have had any material impact on the outcome of election. Oof. Still, we have 200 bills, in 43 states attempting to do, not to fix problems, but to suppress the vote. You know, we say 43 states, it's really 42 states because the one in California will never see the light of day. But we have heard the most about new laws in Iowa. That one's already been signed by the governor last week. And what it does is to restrict early voting and mail-in voting. And why? Why did they do it? Because they had an overwhelming Republican vote last November. There were no claims, no findings, no sort of fraud. So why is Iowa trying to make it harder to vote for essential workers, for students? Why would they do that? Except those are not voters that Iowa Republicans who dominate the legislature and the governorship want. We've heard even more about proposed new laws in Georgia, where the intent could not be clearer to make voting more difficult for black and brown voters by restricting their access to the ballot box, by conducting big sweeping voter roll purges, by enacting fewer days of early voting and eliminating Sunday early voting, which in Georgia is known and has been known since the civil rights era as souls to the polls. You know, you go to church, you're all dressed up, you go to the polls and vote and you're all done. 
fewer polling locations in Georgia, especially in some neighborhoods where they want to force long lines, while forbidding that people standing in those lines can have chairs, food, or water. They want to eliminate no excuse absentee mail-in voting and force onerous identification requirements on those who can get an absentee ballot. They have unreasonably narrow in-person voter ID requirements and the list goes on. While my memories of the civil rights marches against Jim Crow voting laws in the 1960s are vague at best and may in fact only be the pictures I saw in years after those marches, I can imagine that these were the sorts of obstacles that were in place to prevent Black Georgians from voting before 1965, plus, of course, the jar of jelly beans. And the reason for such laws in 2021 is the same as it was in the years before 1965. It is about voter suppression, said most plainly, the GOP apparatus in Georgia and in many other states believe that Donald Trump lost re-election because too many people turned out to vote. Literally, GOP politicians in both Arizona and Georgia have conceded that they can't win elections in those states on the merits of their candidates or those candidates' positions. They can only win by reducing the total number of voters. And as one politician put it, the we, in air quotes, of course, the quality of votes cast. And by that, he doesn't mean the votes of the best informed voters, but rather the wealthier and the whiter. How truly and basically anti-democratic is that? How un-American, how truly indefensible but defend against such laws, we must. And there are three ways to defend our democracy against regressive voter laws. The most obvious is economic pressure brought to bear by the business community of each state where those laws are proposed to protect both their workers and their customers from arbitrary discrimination by the state. Economic pressure is just now starting to stir in Georgia. Georgia's the corporate headquarters of Home Depot, Delta Airlines, UPS, Coca-Cola, the Southern Company, and, and many, many others. It's Atlanta's a very, very big metropolitan business headquarters facility. So not just is the state's Chamber of Commerce speaking up, but also there's been, been talk of national boycotts that are beginning to get the lawmakers' attention because they've got the attention of Home Depot and Coca-Cola very specifically. The second way that we can protect our democracy against progressive voter laws is through the Supreme Court's interpretation of the 1965 Civil Rights Act's voter protections. Currently, the court is considering a case that challenges new voter suppression efforts in Arizona, 
restrictions on mail-in and Dropbox voting, including an attempt to eliminate what they call ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting in, in, in reality in Arizona is when um, on the big reservations, you know, one or two people gather up their family's ballots and, and make the horseback ride or the truck trip uh, 50, 60, 70 miles to the nearest town to drop those ballots off. And they want to eliminate that and force each individual Native American to have to go make that trip, uh, which isn't reasonable. They also want to disqualify ballots that were dropped in the wrong precincts because uh, in their um, more uh, basic worker, you know, essential worker uh, categories, people tend to rent more than they own. And so they may have moved and their ballot maybe puts them, they, their new residence is not in the same precinct and they want to disqualify the ballot because of the precinct the whole ballot, not just the ballot that is precinct specific, the portions that are precinct specific. The third way is through congressional action to strengthen what is referred to as section two of the 1965 Civil Rights Act. There are two possible pieces of legislation currently before Congress proposed to thwart the several state efforts at voter suppression. Before the People Act, which you probably heard referred to in the news as HR1, is an omnibus bill started in the House. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is a simpler approach that follows on the 1965 Civil Rights Act, which John Lewis had a lot of to do with creating. And if we look at these three remedies for efforts at voter suppression. The first remedy requires no further explanation beyond the obvious. Corporate responsibility to that corporation's workforce, its community, and its customers. The role of the Supreme Court requires a bit of explanation. In the 1965 Civil Rights Act, Section 2, voting rights uh, were established established by Congress through a process known as preclearance to be applied to the states with a history of voter discrimination. In other words, states which had Jim Crow could not change their voting laws without the prior approval of the Department of Justice and or the federal court that was supervising them. So under these rules, which as I said, were reauthorized in 2006, these largely Southern states with a history of voter suppression and discrimination against voters of color couldn't change their voting laws without prior approval from the federal court of the District of Columbia or the United States Attorney General. But in 2013, the Supreme Court weakened Section 2 by deciding that after 50 years of enforcement, the preclearance requirement was no longer necessary. That systematic voter suppression was a relic of the past in the court's view, no longer necessary. But the problem is that as soon as preclearance of changes to voting laws was eliminated, discriminatory voter laws began to pop up again. So the Supreme Court was correct in, 
in believing that we had made progress, they were incorrect in thinking that that progress was now a essential part of the system. And that's what led to the current Arizona case, which was heard on March 1st of this year. Along with the restrictions on early voting and, and vote by mail, um, this Arizona legislation, as I said before, requires that the entire ballot be discarded if it was dropped off at the wrong precinct, rather than just discarding, let's say, the city council vote on that ballot, but still allowing the state and federal votes to count. Arguing for the Arizona Secretary of State, one of the lawyers proposed that the law be changed to allow statewide and national races on such a ballot to be counted, even if the local election votes were not tallied. And the GOP argued against that, saying, on the record, it's on a recording, that if that was how the court, the Supreme Court ruled, that statewide and national races on such a ballot should be counted, but not the local races, the GOP lawyer actually argued right out loud that the GOP could not win races where this approach was pursued. That is saying the silent part right out loud, is it not? For members of the American Indian tribes represented in the Arizona electorate, the ability, as I've said before, for a neighbor or relative to drop that ballot off at a great distance is a godsend. It's necessary for their votes to be received and counted. You know, we're talking about having to drive hundreds of miles to drop off your ballot. So the elders of the tribe may not be able to get around as easily as they once did and they need help getting their ballot to the post office or a ballot drop-off box. And as we saw in the last election, some of those ballots, those family ballots, were delivered on horseback to the nearest drop-off location. Arizona Republicans argue that so-called ballot harvesting is replete with fraud, despite a lack of evidence that any fraud exists. While the case is not yet settled, the view is that the court is likely to uphold the Arizona statute with a couple of caveats that were suggested by Brett Kavanaugh, and they make sense to me. First, he said, a standard against which you judge the constitutionality of the new law is that it cannot reduce the voter rights of any Arizona voter prior to its enactment. So in other words, can't take away rights that an Arizona voter has today. And second, that the restrictions placed on voters and voting methods not be more onerous than the restrictions on voters in other states that were not subject to preclearance in the 1965 Act. And you know what? If you impose those two tests on this Arizona law, most of its onerous, its onerous provisions would be defeated, as would the negative objectives of the Arizona legislature. And then there are the two pieces of legislation pending before Congress. The first 
known as the For the People Act, again, you'll hear it referred to as H.R. 1, is an omnibus bill. And as all of you listeners know, I hate omnibus bills because they smash several totally separate decisions into one oversized bag of legislation. One up or down vote. Think of it as a 20-pound turkey stuffed with 30 pounds of stuffing. What they do is they highlight one good thing among the myriad proposals, leaving voters to be surprised when they find out what really is in the legislation. The good thing in H.R. 1 is that it does establish minimum standards for some aspects of voting across the nation. And they are national standards, which we could all agree to. It would set a national standard for voter registration, voter ID and signature verification, voting rolls purges, as well as ballot access, early early voting, absentee voting, and mail-in voting. You know, I'm a big supporter of mail-in voting. As long as you have a rule that says the bet's got to be postmarked before the election. I'm less enthusiastic about aspects of this legislation that would automate voter registration. I mean, I wouldn't die on that hill, but I have big concerns about how you could do it and whether or not it's good. It's good policy. Pre-registration of 16 and 17 year olds. Uh, allowing 17-year-olds to vote in primaries if they'll turn 18 before the general election. Given that our voter, voter systems are as old and antiquated as many of our other core government systems, I question the 50-state ability to separate the pre and the eligible voters. More importantly, voting is both a fundamental right of citizenship and a basic responsibility of citizenship. Thus, having to perform the act of opting in to voting, registering to vote, even if you do it at the same time you're applying for a driver's license, seems to me to be a minimum step in accepting that responsibility. So speaking only for myself, personally, I don't know that I want people to vote who've heard a good commercial but know nothing else about the issue behind it. We have way too many people in this country already who only vote on the 30-second commercials. So I want to enrich this portion of the legislation, if that were to be the piece of legislation that was passed, I'd want to enrich this portion of the legislation with more focus on real voter literacy. Now, the rest of the For the People Act is more about protecting the perceived current advantages of the Democratic Party than it is about um, democracy. It eliminates all state laws governing restricting and sets up restricting, redistricting commissions, perhaps modeled on California and Michigan. Both of those commissions, it should be noted, were established through voter-initiated and passed state constitutional amendments. And neither has been implemented flawlessly. In California, the Democrats cleverly used the 1965 Civil Rights Act provisions that guarantee communities of voters 
to carve out districts for different groups of immigrants. That left the majority districts to meander around these carved out special districts and retained much of the philosophy of candidates being able to choose their voters. It's better, it didn't really achieve exactly the aim that its supporters had. There's a real question also about whether Congress can tell states how to do districting. There's a real question as to whether this whole section of the omnibus bill is constitutional. And that question would take years to get through the courts. And until it got through the courts, you couldn't implement it. So voter suppression could take place for years before this bill was act actually moved into um, being the law of the land. And so if you're not already suspicious and confused enough uh, about what they wanna slip into what they call a voting rights bill, HR1 also seeks to make sweeping changes in the way campaigns are funded. By whom, how you use public taxpayer funds, um, more aggressively in, in funding campaigns um, as though our elections are not already too expensive. And last, the same omnibus bill seeks to impose new ethics legislation covering both presidential and judicial or executive and judicial branches, but not on themselves. It requires a presidential candidate to release 10 years of federal taxes as a condition of candidacy. Everybody except Donald Trump has done that voluntarily. And if you wanna make that a requirement of candidacy to be a president, that's a very simple bill. That's a one page bill that you could write and pass and make into law without complicating it, um, the rest of this legislation. Uh, the HR1 would also impose a set of ethics on federal judges that supersedes any existing voluntary standards. And again, Congress lives in a glass house. So I wonder about them imposing their ethical choices on other people and yet not on themselves. In my mind, the solution is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's the best of all the available options to squash voter suppression attempts in all the states in a very simple, easily understood, single purpose piece of legislation. The bill can be summarized briefly. The John Lewis Voter Rights Advancement Act responds to the current conditions in voting today because it restores the full protections of the original bipartisan Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was last reauthorized by a bipartisan vote in Congress in, 20, in 2006. What it does is it expands the coverage of the act beyond the Jim Crow states of the 1965 act and covers all 50 states equally. And addresses, obviously by doing that, are changing demographics with a single set of rules. The act looks back over 25 rolling years of patterns of systematic discrimination 
And those patterns are the familiar ones, high bar voter ID laws, failure to provide adequate multilingual ballots and the like, limitations in access to polling places and other forms of voting, voter intimidation at the polls, et cetera. The act's provisions can be invoked for a full state or only for a locality within that state where these patterns and practices are present. If, if found to be uh, systematic, then that state or that locality is placed under the supervision of the federal court in Washington, D.C. for a 10-year period moving forward. And if the state cleans up its act and stays outside of violation for 10 years, it's released from supervision. You know, there's no need for a court act to release a state that's in compliance beyond the, the Washington District Court saying, yeah, you're in compliance. And last but certainly not least, the act expands the coverage of the 1965 Civil Rights Act explicitly actually names for the first time Native American and Alaskan Natives. Native Americans are a specific target of voter suppression in the Arizona legislation currently under review by the Supreme Court and have been systematically a target of voter suppression in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana for a long while. And given that they were here before any of us, that's wrong. So HR1 was passed by the House of Representatives last week. That's a repass because it failed in, in the last Congress. And you know what? It's gonna fail in the Senate again because there aren't 60 votes for it. And it's not the Hill on which the filibuster will die. When the John Lewis Voting Rights Act addresses the specific issue of voter rights and preventing both voter suppression without either a constitutional argument over states' rights that will take years to settle in the courts as HR1 would do, or the creation of a vast new bureaucracy to police and posture elections rather than protect voting rights, there's only one thing to do. It's for you to call or write your representatives and urge them to support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It is fair, it is just, and it is timely. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.